Well, good morning, everybody. You can be seated, and if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're almost at the end of this book. Uh, our series on Nehemiah is almost over. It'll probably be years before we ever come back to it again, unless there's an outcry among the people. Please preach it again. But if you're a newbie here and you've not been around for the last eight weeks, and if you're not exhausted or maybe even nauseated by the book of Nehemiah, let me remind you what we've done. There's this little city called Jerusalem that for some crazy reason, go read the Bible, has been at the center of history for a long, long time. And thousands of years ago, a group of guys called the Babylonians invaded this city and took everybody away as slaves. And then the Babylonians uh, got hijacked uh, by the Persians. And then the Persians became responsible for this little stretch of real estate. And the cupbearer to the king of Persia, a guy named Nehemiah, through the workings of God, God called him back to rebuild this city. That's what we've been studying. How do we grasp God's vision for our lives? How can we learn from Nehemiah how we can allow the Holy Spirit to grow us and mature us as leaders to bring leadership in our own lives? And so we studied all about the rebuilding of the wall. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how Nehemiah began to rebuild the people. Because in the middle of this city was a temple. And that temple was the center of the worship of God for God's people. And so we've been talking about the joy of the Lord is their strength. Go back. That was probably the best sermon ever preached since the history of time. Yeah? Yeah? No? Okay. All right. It was okay. Uh, then last week we said, you know, we have to understand what the joy of the Lord is. Because on top of that, it invites us into repentance. And we talked about that last week. And today we're going to build on repentance because we're going to talk about the fruit of repentance, which we're about to see in this text. And so when we read last week, the people had come together for the reading of God's word. The prophet Ezra had read it and um, people were weeping. I mean, it was like the Bonnaroo of repentance because it was like a repentance festival. They spent days, like they changed the way they dressed in sackcloths. They put dirt on their heads. They came in, they bowed low, they humbled themselves, they fasted, they stopped eating food. Everything about their experience was about their repentance. And so they repented. And now we're going to talk about the fruit of repentance. What happens in our lives when we repent? And what we're about to read is they committed themselves to obedience. Because often the fruit of repentance in our lives is not just obedience, but a radical desire for obedience. And we're about to see a radical desire for obedience. You ready for this? Oh, let me warn you a little bit. This is a hard sermon to preach because I'm such a good sinner. Literally, everything inside of me fights against being obedient to the Lord. And so I'm, I'm sipping at this cup as much as I'm asking you to sip at it, okay? So Jenny, come on and read. She's going to be in um, Nehemiah, starting in chapter... Are you starting in chapter 9? Yep, 9.38. And then she's going to pause and I'll explain to you what we're reading, okay? Because there's a lot of names. How many names total, do you think? <laughs> Close to 100. Like, this is the most dreaded thing to do when you read scripture in church. Literally, there are like a hundred uh, Hebrew names in this text. But I'm skipping that part. Do you want to skip that part? Um, yeah, I'm just okay, doing we'll skip that 20, part. All right, 28, 30, go ahead and read 38. <laughs> it's Brandon's fault. Okay, um, in view of all this. Okay, so okay. in view of all what? They just spent a whole day and a half weeks just weeping and repenting. 
And they're repenting of all the sins that they've committed, all the sins of their forefathers. This is just a repentance fest. In view of that repentance, start again. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So they roll out this big old scroll. Here's the contract and the promise that we're going to make to God. Now, all the names of the people that signed it. So Nehemiah was the first to sign it. That should tell something about a leader, you know? And after him, all the priests signed it. And then after him, all the Levites signed them. And then after that, there were like 44 royal families that all stepped up and signed this. So all these people in this assembly are stepping up and taking their turn to sign that. Then at the end of the list of names of those who signed it, you can go back and read it at your own pleasure if you so desire. (laughs) The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, and all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commandments, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Okay, Lord, um, we claim your promise now. As we've been singing about it, now we claim it. Uh, Make your word come alive, and would it burn in our hearts and reveal you and ourselves and grow us in our love. In Christ's name, amen. So here's this long list of not just uh, very important people, that signed this, but then after the very important people, the less important people whose names didn't make it into the Bible, they're all coming in and they're all signing this, this contract with God that says that if we keep this contract, you're gonna bless us, but if we don't keep this contract, you're gonna curse us. Wow. I mean, this really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it's, it's our hearts. like. Whenever we have an experience with God, our hearts are passionate about wanting to uh, follow God. In fact, a lot of times here at Midtown, when we talk about Christians, we call ourselves Christ followers, which means that, and this is deep, we follow Christ. It means where it's not like if he's going to Bellevue, we'll go to Bellevue. It does mean, kind of mean that, but what it means is, is that we're gonna shape our lives around the life of Christ. What he did, we do. What he valued, we value. What he obeyed, we will obey. This is normal for us. In fact, when we talk about the the New Testament and we start talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit promises to come in our lives and to finish the work that he started in us. And what is the work that he's doing in us? He's making us like Christ until the day that we see him face to face. And on that day, we will be like him. This is the work of God in us through Jesus Christ is to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. Jesus even said it himself. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In James chapter two, this is verse 14 and 16. Listen to how James puts it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save you? Suppose a brother or a sister was without clothes and daily food. If one of you say to them, go in peace and keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Now Martin Luther, when he looked at this text, he said that, that it's not just that we don't, it's not faith plus deeds that save us, it's faith and faith alone. But my faith is never alone because my faith always expresses itself in our lives. And our lives should reflect that faith that is true about us, that we follow him. And you know what's crazy is that when you begin to understand that as a believer, you begin to realize it's not just the law that we follow, you know, don't kill, so we stop killing people or steal, you know, like that, but it's also this partnership with the Holy Spirit that becomes a part of our lives. We were in Chipotle the other night, one of my favorite restaurants, not ashamed to admit it. And, you know, we were getting our usual, Renee was there by me, and there was a kid at the register, probably a high school student from Hillsborough High School, who, you know, was digging in his pockets and he just was coming up short. And I could just tell, you know, he was panicking a little bit because his stomach was a lot bigger than his wallet. And I looked at the register and I just felt the Lord said, step in. And I, I stepped into the register and said, hey, just put his stuff on my ticket. And the guy just looked at me and grabbed his food and just left. I... <laughs> Because that's the gospel. It's too good to be true. It's just too good to be true. And then there was a girl behind me, and she goes, how do I get in on that action? I said, I said, simple, put her on my ticket too. And that was so much fun. Like, and then the whole place stopped and said, preacher, give us the word of God. It was a revival, I'm telling you. They stopped selling pork products. I know, it's... No, nothing happened except it was like, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit says we're going to stir it up. And I want you to help me stir it up. Come on, listen to me and follow me. So two weeks ago, I was playing golf and it was just me and a buddy. And so sometimes when you play golf with just two of you, they throw somebody else in the group to try to keep the crowd going. And so we're playing with this guy and he's talking about, you know, his life. And he goes, yeah, I love to surf. And I surf like four times a year and I'm really interested. And he goes, Man, you just, when you're out there, it's just a Zen experience. You know, you just, you're in touch with Mother Earth and it's just, just, you just feel nature and it becomes a part of you. I'm listening to him and the Holy Spirit said, ask him about it. Ask him what, Lord? Ask him about Zen and faith. Is that really what you believe? And here's what I said to the Lord. I am playing golf. I refuse to be that guy. You know that guy that you're, in an, you're, like you're on a ski lift and somebody says, do you know Jesus? I'm like, you're trapped. You're with us. I, I am not working today, Lord. I ain't doing it. See, I'm gonna just confess to you, there's a war inside of me. And this war is I fight against the will of God in my life. You know, I am honestly telling you that in my life, have you ever taken a kid to the grocery store it is a mistake. Like, take a four-year-old. Like, they have to be old enough to be able to know what they like, okay? Because when you're riding down the aisles, they're grabbing, like, sugar cereals and, you know, all the stuff they love and just throwing it in the bag. And your whole experience is, no, 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 no. We're not getting 12 bags of potato chips. That's me and Jesus. Like, I'm going through my life going, Lord, how about this? How about this? And the Lord said, no, 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 no. Trust me. 
And let me tell you how hard it gets because in Matthew chapter 22, this is the words of your savior. He said, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandments. And the second commandment, listen to what he says, is like it. So what I'm about to read to you is like loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What could possibly be like that? This, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does that not blow your mind that the Jesus you're here to worship says that to you? This is the purpose of your life, to love God and love your neighbor like yourself. Does that not challenge something inside of you? Wait a minute. So I am supposed to consider my neighbor's interest, my neighbor's needs on the same level as my own, that I'm to love them like I love me? Because let me tell you something, my love for me is unbelievable. So I share a little strip of grass with my neighbor that we're not real sure whose strip of grass that is. It is a personal sacrifice for me to mow that section when it's my turn to mow. I am serving you, brother, like myself. It's hard. Could you imagine being in an argument with somebody, like a heated argument with somebody, and you're valuing their side as much as you value your own? Could you imagine an argument saying, hey, I really want to hear what you have to say. And they speak to you, and they're passionate, and they're mad at you. And you stop and you go, so here's what I think I hear you saying. And you say it back to them and they go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And you look back at them and say, thank you. That's such a valid point. That's something you should fight for. Could you imagine that in an argument? That your side is important as my side. In Romans 7, Paul says, what chance is that for us? He says, what I want to do, I don't do. And the very thing that I don't want to do is the very thing that I end up doing. We're like walking contradictions. And this war that's going on inside of us, it's a desire to actually die to ourselves. Die to ourselves. How do we do that? Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 7. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? But the next line is so powerful because he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's the crazy thing, and it takes us to chapter eight. And chapter eight, Romans chapter eight, favorite book in the Bible, favorite chapter in the Bible. Because it's just so unbelievable. He says, therefore, since there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, none, zero, no condemnation, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law was power, powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Let me explain that. Okay. See you later, Jerusalem. All right. So the law, wow, the law, like Pretend that's a door, all right? The law, the contract that they signed in the book of Nehemiah has promises to it. And the promises is if you can get through this door on the other side are immense blessings. And here's what the law does. The law gives you all these rules. 
And the rules show us what's true. It shows us the character of God. It shows us the beauty of holiness. But what it says right here in Romans chapter eight, the law was powerless to do something. What was it powerless to do? This is me. I won't even include you in this, all right? See how kind I am? The law demands 100% purity. Maybe 1%. I fall short. I can't measure up to the standards of the law. I can't do it. I fall so short. That means that this door right here that's full of blessings never gets open for me. Except God did it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So let's go back to Nehemiah. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 10. In verse 29, it says, and all those joined their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God and given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. So they went on, if you read the rest of the chapter, they made these promises about family and they made these promises about marriage and they made these promises about the Sabbath and the temple and then more promises about the temple and they even made promises about the firstborn that their firstborn always belonged to the Lord and what they would do about that and they even made promises about tithe and it's odd because when you read the rest of chapter 10 you realize okay you're making promises about some things but there's a lot of stuff you left out why did you make promises about these things and not make promises about these other things? Well, let's think about it. These were humans, and we're humans. So we've got something in common. And one of the things that we have in common is that we always make promises about the stuff that's issues for us. In other words, if you promise me that you're going to drive the speed limit, it probably means you don't drive the speed limit. You with me? Or if you promise hey, I promise you this weekend, I'm not going to drink too much. It's probably because last week you drank too much. Or you promise I'm going to be there on time. Don't worry. Let's go grab lunch. I'll be there on time. You're promising me because you probably are never anywhere on time. These were the hot topics because the people of God had forgotten. They had lost touch with who they were about being God's people in the midst of a world that was not God's people. They forgot who they were as God's holy nation and the promises that God was making through their nation. They'd forgotten that God is the center of their identity and their personhood and their national pride. They neglected the Sabbath. Like they forgot that to rest in the Lord is to remember that he's the provider of everything in my life, even my children and my money and my goods. The same with tithing. They stopped tithing because they'd forgotten that all of this belongs to you and you're sharing with us, not us sharing with you. But this covenant was really nothing new. If you go back to the Old Testament, uh, you see that this idea of contract, or as we often talk about it in our tradition, covenants, was pretty common. God made a covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And this idea of a contract was you had two people and they drew up these stipulations uh, for their agreement. And this agreement, if it was kept, there were blessings. If it was broke, there were curses. Like look at Genesis chapter two. This is verse 15. 
The Lord God took Adam, the man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. That's God making a contract with Adam. Don't eat from the tree, blessings. Eat from the tree, curses. Well, we all kind of know how that turned out, don't we? There are blessings. And here's what's crazy about what we read in Romans chapter eight, is that it is impossible for me to access the blessings of God because I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus comes in and now fulfills the law 100% kept every bit of the demands of the law and now through his good work opens the blessings of the covenant of God to me when I am in Christ. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10. And by that will, the will of Jesus, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hang with me. We're almost done. Trust me, this this conclusion is exciting. promise you, it's a plot twist, all right? In verse 11, it says, day by day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. What's he doing? He's going back to our memory of the covenant of Jerusalem. And he's saying, see, in the temple, the priests were offering sacrifices, but it could never get us to the door of blessing. It could never do it. Then he says, but when this priest, meaning Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, Jesus... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He took on our curse and he opened up the blessing because we now are holy. We're holy. Jesus satisfied the demands of the covenant. He fulfilled it perfectly and he gave it to us. He took our curse and he gave us his blessing. Do you hear what that means? We have full access now to all the blessings of God. When Kevin and the worship team read that passage at the beginning, all the promises are yes in Jesus Christ, it means that Jesus, because of his sacrifice and his obedience, his perfect obedience, has opened up for all of you all the blessings of God, yes in Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace upon grace. In fact, it's so outrageous. It's so unbelievably unbelievable how great God's grace is that in Romans chapter six, Paul had to put this in there. So what shall we say then? If, grace increases, if, if sin increases, grace increases even more. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We're not just those that have been made holy, but we're also those that are being made holy. Meaning our lives now that we've been open to the blessing, now the Holy Spirit is calling us to partner with him in obedience, to walk with him, to let our lives reflect more and more the holiness that's been given us 
through Jesus Christ. How do we do that? A lot of scripture today, but let me give you one more. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 15, for Christ love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, the heart of obedience, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Love compels us. Because obedience is hard. Because every step of obedience I take, I have to die to me. So one of the things that Renee and I have been doing over the last couple of months is we've been praying through Ephesians about what does it look like to be married? And it says in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave his life for her. It's the, it's the job description for a husband. What is it? I die to me. I completely die to me. And now my life exists to lift you up, to serve you, to wash your feet, to make your needs more important than my needs, to care for you more than I care for myself, to ensure that you have every opportunity to grow in holiness. Oh, Lord, do you know how painful that is in marriage? I'm serious, because I got rights in this marriage. The Lord says, hey, my love the grace of what I've opened up for you, the blessings. Here's somebody told me the other day, Jesus is in the most dysfunctional marriage in the world. Why? Because he's married to you. <laughs> and he died to himself to lift you up. And now he says, follow me, follow me. And here's all I have to say to you. Just think about it. The Holy Spirit is in this room and he's working right now. Where's the Holy Spirit asking you to follow? You know, come on. Where, where is he saying, come on, get out of your stubbornness, get out of your rebellion, get out of your, your bitter desire to stand your ground, humble yourself and follow me. You failed a thousand times, but just try one more time. Where is that? Hang on to that. Because I want to tell you about Philip Blank. <laughs> I know. Philip Blank. It's actually Philip Blank's. Here's an S on the end of it. Sorry, Philip. About 10 years ago, he was a high school student at Kalamazoo, Michigan, Central High School. And he was a, just a star wide receiver. Um, and just really made a name for himself. <clears throat> but last summer, uh, after 10 years of serving in the Marines, he was visiting a friend of his at an apartment complex when he heard somebody shouting outside and he went outside and he looked up and the third story of the apartment complex was on fire. And there was a woman standing on the balcony with flames just licking up right behind her and in her arms, she was holding a baby. And Philip looked up and somebody behind him said, drop him, drop him. And Philip panicked. He's like, what, what is about to happen? And she leaned over the rail with her child. Let's pause right there. Because when it comes to obedience, the Lord is looking at us and going, I know, it is scary. And hell would convince you that it's too scary for you to walk into obedience. And the Lord is standing there and he's going, come on, come on, trust me. 
Trust me. Let my love for you compel you now. All that I've done for you compel you now to trust me. She did. She dropped that little baby. And here's what's amazing. There's a video of it. Somebody was filming it. And Philip had to run and make a diving catch. And he caught the baby. Profound. And I promise you, Jesus is going to catch you. But that's not where the end of the story is. Because driving down the road, going to work, D'Artagnan Alexander, I know. I wish I could go back and say, Jesus, let my mom name me that. D'Artagnan. <laughs> Saw the flames and he pulled over his car and he heard somebody scream. And without thinking, he ran into the apartment complex because the woman who had dropped her child over the balcony still had an eight-year-old trapped in a bedroom. And D'Artagnan like kicked in the door, ran in and grabbed that little girl and ran out and saved her life. Like no thought to himself. Later, somebody said, what were you thinking? He goes, I have no idea. I've never done anything like that before in my life. I just pulled up. I saw somebody scream. I just went. Here's the crazy thing about your Jesus is I can fall into him and experience grace upon grace upon grace and he will catch you again and again and again and it will grow your love for him that will be sweet and you will say, Lord, more of me needs to die. Less of me, more of you. That obedience isn't killing me to where I don't have me anymore. Obedience in you is bringing me to life to where I'm finally getting to see who I am. But you know how great your Jesus is? Even if you don't jump, he's going to come find you. He'll kick in that door. And he'll come get you. That's just how great this love is. That he who knew no sin, he became all of your sin. So that you could become the righteousness of God. So that all the promises of God are yes for you through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that whatever you're doing in this room right now. That, Lord, you would be sweet with us. That you'd be kind with us as you look up at us and go jump. Jump. And those places of our lives where we refuse to give you ground. And those places in our lives where we have declared our independence and we stand in our own self-righteousness and refuse to even love you or to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. And I pray, God, that you would give us courage now. Courage now to not just know that you've come for us, but know wherever you go, our hearts desire to follow you. Give us this fruit of repentance, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.